wonderful. God is great, right? Great is our God. We're going to be talking about how God is God, and we're not a little bit today. Um, I, d- I do want to just uh, recap again, just uh, briefly, uh, baptism announcement. Um, the baptism is going to be coming up soon. I haven't set an exact date. Uh, we're not going to be doing it in the river, okay, <laughs> just so you know. Um, so I'm working on that. Uh, but anybody who'd, who is interested in being baptized, if you haven't been baptized yet, um, let me know. Uh, if you're unsure if you want to be baptized, uh, here are a few reasons why you might want to be baptized first. And the greatest reason is Jesus commands us to be baptized. Once we believe, um, he, he asks us to be baptized. So in obedience to Christ, um, we should be baptized. Uh, also, secondly, uh, baptism is kind of like a wedding. It's an opportunity to make a public profession of your faith, uh, to, to, to openly declare that Jesus is your Lord. Um, it also is a, is a celebration that you've been raised from death to new life. It stands as a memorial in your mind that you can look back to, that, that you have made this commitment, that you've joined as one with Christ. And so that's another reason to consider being baptized. And lastly, Jesus himself was baptized. So I encourage you to uh, prayerfully, thoughtfully consider following Christ's example and being baptized if you have not been baptized yet. Um, Before we start today's message, uh, we're going to be jumping into chapter 9. We're going to, I don't know, last chapter, chapter 8, we went through in in three sections. Today we're going to go through all of chapter 9. So it's going to be like three hours long, so settle in. Uh, but before we jump in, let's, let's go ahead and pray and ask God to, to speak to us through his word. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the encouragement that is to us. I thank you that it tells us more about who you are and how you relate to mankind. Um, I ask that uh, as we read your word, Lord, that your spirit would speak to us, that you would instill uh, truths in our hearts and passion in our hearts to uh, walk a life that would bring glory and honor to you. Uh, we, we open ourselves up to you, Lord, and whatever you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so there are a lot of things in chapter 9 that you, we, could, we could focus in on and we could probably make a whole day uh, conversation on. There's some things that are maybe uh, things that, that uh, the, the theologians have wrestled with over time. I'm not going to go that deep. We're not going to go um, all the way down into some of these, these, uh, these things that people kind of get tangled up in. Instead, we're going to focus up on, on three things that are kind of key uh, truths that we can take away from this chapter. Uh, number one is, is having a passion like Paul's passion for the lost. And in particular, he, for, for the Israel, nation of Israel was Paul's passion. Also, God is not man, God is God. God is not man, God is God. And lastly, we were chosen by God, but we also choose God. So we were chosen by God and we also choose God. Um, so we're going to start off with Paul's passion. We're actually going to begin and end with Paul's passion. So we're going, to, we're going to go just a little bit into chapter 10, and we're going to bookmark both ends of this message with Paul's passion. So starting in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, it says, With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. 
My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to forever, be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if it would save them. They are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors, and Christ himself was an Israelite as far as human nature is concerned. And he is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. So if you remember from chapter 8, it concluded with us pondering all of the amazing things that God has done, his promises to us, the great hope that we can have in him, and that overwhelming victory is ours, that we've been made more than conquerors through Christ. And on top of that, he emphasized that all of these things are available to us because God is for you, because God loves you, and he demonstrated that God is for you by sending his son to die for us and by giving us his Holy Spirit to live in us, sealing us, as his very own children. So you may have noticed as we read this first section of chapter 9 that it has a completely different tone. We ended chapter 8 celebrating God's love, declaring that nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us who belong to Christ from the love of God. Those were joy-filled verses, and now he says, my heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief. How did we get from chapter 8 to chapter 9. What happened between those two? It's as if Paul in his remembering or recounting of God's great love and all the blessings that he have, he was reminded of all those who were missing out. He saw where he is and he looks at, and he realizes all of these people that don't have God's great love, that are not in this place of, of never being able to be separated from God's love because they haven't been, they haven't really joined into it yet. They haven't received it. He begins by thinking about all these people who were in the same place that he was in. He was one of those that was, that was caught up in the law. He hadn't received Jesus. He didn't see Jesus for who he was. And, and he looks back and he's like, I was there and they're still there. It's like someone who is trapped in a burning building and somebody runs in and rescues them and pulls them out of the building and their first reaction is this love and appreciation that this person saved them but then they look back at the building and they remember the people that are still in there, that still need to be saved, they realize that their friends are still in there and they're filled with this, this mixture of uh, fear and hope that somehow they might be saved. Paul had received God's unfailing love through the Messiah that was promised long ago. And his heart aches for his fellow Israelites that have rejected Jesus. They were unable to see him for who he was, that he is the true child of the promise that was to come through Abraham. He is the final answer to the curse that came in the Garden of Eden. He is the Messiah they were looking for, but they didn't expect him to come the way that he came, and so they rejected him. Can you imagine, of all people, Israel. They were given so much from God and they were failing to experience true sonship. 
They're failing to experience the true love of a personal God that desires for them to call, the, call him Abba Father. They were the first to be chosen to be God's adopted children. It said in verse 4, uh, God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them. He gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises. They had all that going for them, yet they were still missing it. Have you ever known somebody, maybe in high school, um, or, or you just heard stories about somebody who's maybe academically top of their class and everybody expected that they were going to go on to you know, be rich and successful? Or maybe there was somebody that you heard about that was going to, you know, they were the star athlete and everybody expected someday they were going to be a nationally known you know, basketball player or whatever. And then you hear about them later and they never lived up to the, their potential. Something happened that, that deterred them, distracted them, and they didn't live up to what, uh, what, was, what, what they'd been given, really. And, and you think, what happened? You know, what a waste of all that, that talent or ability. And that's what Paul sees in his own people, except for it wasn't their own ability. It was the gifts of God that were given to them. They had all this advantage, and it grieves him. Up to this point in history, the Jews were awaiting a Messiah that would come and rule as an earthly king, that would restore their physical nation of Israel. They looked at verses like Jeremiah 23, 5, that says, For the time is coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He will be a king who rules with wisdom. He will do what is just and right throughout the land and the verses following continue to talk about Judah and Israel living in safety and the people coming back and their nation thriving in peace. And, and so they saw the Messiah coming back as what they pictured as an earthly king. Their understanding was too limited. They didn't understand that the king would first come back as a perfect sacrifice. They weren't able to see that God had a much bigger plan in store, that that extended beyond just the physical, but a restoration of a spiritual Israel, a people that were not just God's people, but God's very own children. And this restoration came to Israel first, but it was made available to everyone. And it is a restoration that is still continuing today as more and more people receive Christ and are brought into the family of God, become God's chosen people. Even though Paul's primary calling was to the Gentiles, his heart still ached for the Jews. In fact, we're going to see as we move ahead to chapter 11 that he talks about how he wants so badly to see the Gentiles get saved so that the Jews would become jealous and that they would then be saved, that they would want what the Gentiles have. And so he's still, as he's, as he's ministering to, to primarily the, the non-Jewish people, he wants that to be a light and to the Jewish people that they might still be saved. He was passionate for Israel, for them to be saved. Second key thought was God is not man, God is God. As we continue in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 14, it says, Well then, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? No. For not all who were born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. For the scriptures say, Isaac 
is the son through whom your descendants will be counted, through, though Abraham had other children too. This means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. Only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. For God had promised, I will return about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. This son was our ancestor Isaac. When he married Rebekah, she gave birth to twins. But before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, she received a message from God. This message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. He calls people, but not according to their good or bad works. She was told, your older son will serve your younger son. In the words of scripture, I loved Jacob, but I rejected Esau. Are we saying then that God was unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, I'll read verse 15 too. For God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So Romans uh, 9.6 said, Well then, has God failed to fulfill his promises to Israel? God made promises to Abraham and to his descendants. But to whom were his promises truly for? God's promises were not given to all of Abraham's children, but only to the child of the promise, the one that God chose to carry out his plan of redemption. Abraham had eight sons. He had Ishmael, then he had Isaac, and after Sarah's death, he had six more sons after he got remarried. But the covenant promises to Abraham passed only to Isaac. And God did not choose all of Isaac's children either. The promises that were passed to Isaac before, before his kids were even born, Jacob was chosen to be the one that the promises would come true through. God chose to bless some and not others according to his redemptive plan. Does that make God unfair? Does that make God unfair? How many of you looking back at your childhood... Um, and thinking about the way you were treated compared to maybe the youngest child in your family have thought, it wasn't fair. It wasn't fair. As the youngest child, I, I just want to say, get over it. <laughs> I, I mean that in the nicest way possible. I do. Um, as the youngest, of course, I don't see that. You know, that didn't. But if it were really true, do you truly have a right to be mad? Do you truly have the right to be mad? Uh, did their treatment, your parents' treatment of your sibling, take away from their love for you? Or was it just a blessing to your sibling? Did you lose something that you had earned or deserved? As parents, we often get tired of hearing our kids say, that's not fair, right? Any parents ever hear that? Um, not in my house, right? Yeah, okay. Just your, maybe your siblings, yeah. Anyway, um, just talking to Kyle here because he's might be on the spotlight as I'm talking about kids and the things they say. So that's not fair, something that we as parents don't like to hear. Um, as much as we may try to be fair with our kids, we know that it's impossible to keep everything perfectly even, 
And depending on the behavior of each individual kid, even might not be fair. Why should one who's behaving well receive the same who's, as one who's behaving badly? A better question for a child to ask would be, what do I deserve? A child could expect that a parent is going to do their best to love them, to feed them, to shelter them, to clothe them. Even that is a gift, though. It's not something they earned. It's still a gift that their parents are giving to them because they love them. But everything beyond that is just a blessing upon a blessing. What do you really deserve? Junior high class, uh, those of you who are in here, high schoolers, uh, I promise your parents did not ask me to say that. But it's but just as a reminder, all of the people around you, all the grown-ups around you were once children as well, and we all at some point thought our parents were being unfair. But when you get older, you start to realize that it really was unfair because we really deserve, we really received more than we deserved. It wasn't fair that we received what we received. We got more than we deserved. And if you start appreciating that now, while you're still a child, like you can, it, it's not, this isn't to make you feel bad that, you know, like, oh, I guess I'm getting what I get, you know, better than I deserve. Like that should make you happy when you realize you're getting more than you deserve. And so if you can appreciate that as a child, you're going to be a happier uh, person. You're going to be a more grateful person. And so it's good for you. It's good for us to even let go of things in the past where maybe we feel like we were slighted and realized we didn't really deserve it in the first place. Anyway, back to Romans. Um, verse 14 said, are we saying that God was unfair? So he's talking about Abraham's kids and how some were chosen and some were not and Isaac was chosen instead of Esau. Does that mean that God was unfair? The Greek word for unfair used here means something that is unjust or unrighteous something that would cause damage or injury or loss. It's not about treating everyone the same. God is God, and he has the right to show kindness to whoever he wants to show kindness to, according to his goodwill. Jesus taught about this in a, a parable in chapter 20, a parable about the vineyard workers in Matthew 20. He said uh, there's a story about an owner who owned a vineyard, and he went into town and he hired workers right away in the morning he hired uh, workers to work the whole day for a day's wage and then later in the day he went back and he hired more workers and he went back and he hired more workers all the way up until there's only an hour left in the day he hired more workers to come out and at the end of the day he started distributing the pay he started with the people he hired last first and he paid those who only worked an hour a full day's wage and he came all the way to the people who worked all day through the heat of the day, and he also paid them a full day's wage. And those who worked all day complained that this was not fair, that they got paid exactly the same as those who worked only an hour, even though they had worked through the whole day. And in Matthew 20, verses 13 through 15, the vineyard owner answers. He says, he answered one of them. He said, friend, I haven't been unfair didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is that against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? Was God unfair when he chose some for his redemptive plan and not others? Of course not. Those 
who were chosen weren't chosen because they earned the blessing, but received it because of God's kindness. But those who did not receive the blessing were not cheated out of something that they deserved. God is God, and he will show mercy upon anyone he chooses to show mercy to and show compassion to those he chooses to show compassion. So uh, thinking for a moment about Paul's conversion, he's traveling down the road to Damascus seeking to kill Christians, to persecute Christians, uh, to put an end to the teachings of Christ. And Jesus appears to him on the road, blinds him, you know, and, and speaks to him, you know, just this blinding light is Jesus standing in front of him. And he calls him to be his messenger of the good news to the Gentiles. And you think, what incredible mercy God showed on Paul. I mean, of all people, that he would show him that kind of mercy that he would appear to him in such a powerful way and rescue him from a path that was leading to death. Was God being unfair when he called Paul and not also revealing himself in the same way to others that were also lost? Does God have the authority to do what he wills with his creation for his glory? Paul goes on to expand on this thought as he moves into verse 16. It says, So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor, nor work for it. For the scripture says that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame throughout the earth. So you see, God chooses to show mercy to some and he chooses to harden the hearts of others so they refuse to listen. Well, then you might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what makes them, what he makes them do? No, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human, a mere human being, to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, why have you made me like this? When a potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have the right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage in? In the same way, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he is very patient with those on whom his anger falls, who are destined for destruction. He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those whom he shows mercy, who were prepared in advance for glory and are among those who he selected both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. Excuse me. God chooses to show mercy to some and he chooses to harden the hearts of others. On the surface, you might, if you dare, presume to say, it is not right for God to blame them for the way they respond. But we should check ourselves and remember that we are talking about God. We're talking about God. He's not a man. He's not only the very nature, uh, he's not only the one whose very nature is the standard of perfect righteousness, but he's also operating from a completely different 
level of authority than humans operate from. God is God, and all that has been created belongs to him. God is God, and all that he created belongs to him. So God is the perfect standard for righteousness. So what standard are we then trying to judge him by if he is the perfect standard? Uh, when we look in Job chapter 38, God responds to him. Uh, Job had questioned, essentially questioned, whether it was fair the way he was treated, whether God was treating him fairly. And God responds to him in Job 38, 1 through 6. It says, Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, Who is this that questions my wisdom? With such ignorant words, brace yourselves like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you know so much, who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars, who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? God goes on and he says to Job, he says, who kept the sea inside the boundaries as it burst from the womb? Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and cause the dawn to rise in the east? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Where does the light come from and where does darkness go? Can you direct the constellations through the seasons or guide the bear with her cubs across the heavens? Do you know the laws of the universe? Can you use them to regulate the earth? Can you shout the clouds and make it rain? God is God, and we are not. We are not his equal. He has authority all over all of his creation. We can't judge him by the standards of what is right for a man because God is God. Who are we to say that he can or can't do what he can and can't do with his creation? Aren't his ways higher than our ways? Aren't his thoughts higher than our thoughts? Since God is God, he can choose to show mercy on some and harden the hearts of others. And since he is the standard of perfect righteousness, and, and, and that's not to say that he is he's the standard of perfect righteousness, but he is perfect righteousness. So when he's doing it, we may not understand why or how, but that doesn't mean that it's not perfect righteousness because God is righteous and he will only do what is righteous. When we look uh, a little deeper, we read that there was a, uh, one of the examples that he used was Pharaoh, right? that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. When we look under the surface of this example of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, we see that God didn't do this arbitrarily. Rather, Pharaoh had already hardened his heart towards God several times. The, words, the, the Bible says that he had hardened his heart towards God and he had defied God. God knew that Pharaoh was never going to put his faith in him. He had set himself up against God, saying, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Pharaoh saw himself above God, and he was destined for destruction. God knows his future, and he was destined for destruction. So God chose 
to show his power through him by calcifying an already hard heart so that he could make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those whom he chose to show mercy. Romans 9, 25 through 33 says, uh, actually just uh, starting with Romans 9, 25, concerning the Gentiles, God says in the prophecy of Hosea, those who are not my people, I will now call my people and I will love those whom I did not love before. It seems kind of weird to hear God say, those whom I did not love before, because we think of God as loving everyone, right? But in, in Hebrew, it's common for the word, words love and hate to be used in a, in a comparative sense. So earlier we read that God loved Jacob and rejected Esau. Many translations will actually say that God loved Jacob and hated Esau. The word love used is, is used in, in the positive. It's used in, a, in an active type of ex- expression. But the word hate is not used in the positive. It's not used in an active sort of sense. It rather means that, that he's withholding from Esau a blessing that is given to Jacob. That something's not available to one that's available to the other. So when God says in Hosea that he's going to love those he did not love, he means that he's con- contrasting the condition of people before the promises were available to them to the condition after the promises are available to them. God's love was not available to all. He loved them. He desired for them to, to know him, but, but his blessings were not yet available. Now, now the, the, his blessings are available to all people. So he's contrasting, and, and when he says he loves them, he has poured out his blessings so that they are available to them. Verse 26 continues saying, And then at the place where they were told, You are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. And concerning Israel, Isaiah the prophet cried out, Though the people of Israel are numerous as the sand of the seashore, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth quickly and with finality. And Israel, sorry, and Isaiah said the same thing in another place. If the Lord of heaven's armies had not spared a few of our children, we would have been wiped out like Sodom destroyed Gomorrah. What does all this mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God. And it was by faith that this took place. But the people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law never succeeded. And why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of by trusting in him. They stumbled over the greatest rock in their path. God warned them of this in the scriptures when he said, I am placing a stone in Jerusalem that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall, but anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. We are chosen by God and we choose God. It was God's plan even before Jesus came to earth that anyone, anyone who trusts in Jesus would never be disgraced. That means that our hope in him for salvation will not fail us. Some people read individual verses in chapter 9 
and determine that God chooses some and he doesn't choose others and that we have no say in the matter, that we do not have a choice. But in this chapter, we read that Israel was chosen. But many of those who were chosen did not choose to receive the Messiah that God sent. And, and this was breaking Paul's heart. They were called first. They were shown love first. They were the apple of God's eye, and yet they were not living up to all of the potential that God had blessed them with and had not chosen to receive the child of the promise. We talked back in chapter 6 about the power of choice that God gave us, that without choice we can't really show true love. You can't show true love if you're forced to love somebody. That's not true love. We've been given the power of choice. God desires for us to call him Father, not by an uncontrollable compulsion, but by our hearts longing and chasing after him. And just as God was able to take Pharaoh's decision to harden his heart and make it even harder, God can take our choice to love him and to receive him and cement that decision by choosing to secure us in him choosing to uh, give us his grace in which we now stand, a grace that will sustain us until the day of his return when we have complete restoration. So God chooses to solidify us in him. So we choose God, but he chooses us. It's, it, it's, it's kind of confusing, but it happens at the same time. God made a way for us to be chosen. God knows the end from the beginning. He knows what's going to happen, so it's hard to, to figure all this stuff out. And these are things that I wasn't going to go into today, but I'm kind of going off. And you can wrestle with this a lot. Theologians have wrestled with this over the years. How, how could we choose if he chose or if he knows the end? How could, how could he not made it to happen that way? Um, it's, it's a difficult thing to wrestle with. But we know that, that God does give us the ability to choose. We know that he, without it, we can't truly love him. We know that, that Adam was given a choice in the beginning. We know that, uh, that, that he says over and over in his word that he wants everyone to be saved. He wants everyone to be saved. We all have the ability. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord should be saved. And so we can choose him, but he, chose, he chooses us as well. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. Uh, Romans 10, 1 through 4. We're going to be closing again, like I said, uh, with Paul's passion, uh, kind of bookending both ends of this message. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way and getting, of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. Paul is heartbroken for his people, for his nation. They had so much going for them, and then to not see them finish, cross the finish line is hard to watch. Sadly, 2,000 years later, 
many Jews have still failed to recognize that that stone that caused their ancestors to stumble was Jesus. And he's more than a stumbling stone. He is the cornerstone. He is the foundation on which God has built his church, his family, his children, and is the only way for them to be saved, to become truly God's chosen people. As non-Jewish Christians, even today it's difficult for us to see this group of people so close to all these promises that God has given them, but still missing it. The law was given to Israel to show their need for a Savior and to show us our need for a Savior, but it was never going to save them because none of us were ever going to be able to live up to it. None of us were able to perfectly follow it. Trying to obtain God's promises by following the law is like trying, you know, it's like one of those donkeys with a stick tied to him with a carrot dangling over the top, and you can keep on chasing after it, but it just... It just keeps on moving away. We can't get there on our own. The Jews of Paul's day and the Jews today are still chasing after that carrot on the end of the stick. And that should grieve us all, that they're missing, that they're never going to get there that way. But not only Israel, but Americans do the same thing. Uh, maybe they're not. Maybe they're not chasing after after the carrot. Maybe they're chasing after something that they shouldn't be chasing after. But um, even though our nation doesn't have the same history that Israel has, we still have uh, a powerful history. We are still given much. Our nation was founded on the truth of the God of the Bible, that He is the one true God. Many of those who first traveled to this land from Europe were Christians. The constitutions of many of our individual states, disregarding our the, the Constitution of the United States, but even of the individual states were established recognizing God as sovereign over all. Wisconsin's uh, Constitution starts off with, we the people of Wisconsin, grateful to Almighty God for our freedom in order to secure its blessings, form a more perfect government to ensure domestic tranquility and promote the general welfare to establish this Constitution. Across the river, Minnesota says, we the people of the state of Minnesota grateful to God for our civil and religious liberty and desiring to perpetuate its blessing and secure the same to ourselves and our posterity do ordain and establish this constitution. We as Americans have a great history. We were blessed to have the word of God spread throughout our land. We have churches in every city Reminders of God's greatness imprinted upon monuments and upon buildings. It's, it's even imprinted on our currency. We have been given so much, it's hard to believe that those who have been given so much that have all of this information available to them do not recognize the God of the Bible, the God of our forefathers, is the one true God and that Jesus is his son. So we should add our prayers to the prayers of Paul praying for the Jews, but we should also have a heartache for our nation. For our nation that the eyes of Americans would be open to the truth as well. God has promised back in Genesis that through Abraham's descendants, all nations shall be blessed. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that promise is true for all nations today. We're in that time frame. 
Today we live in the greatest time in history. Jesus, the Messiah, has come, and all who can call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He, the Messiah has come. At Christmas, we remember the words of the angel. Saying, he said to the, the, the shepherds, he says, I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Joy to all people. Our Savior, the child of the promise, has come. In Revelation 22, 17, it says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let anyone who hears this say, Come. And anyone who, thirsts, who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who desires drink, who desires drink freely from the waters of life. Let anyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the waters of life. Jesus made the way, and his spirit is living in us. That spirit that is calling come lives in us and is longing for the nations to come to him. So our hearts joined with the spirit should have that same longing, should have that same uh, desire, that same passion that Paul had for his people, that we would look across and we'd see all the blessings that God has given, all of the reminders that God has given, especially in this nation and in, in Israel, but, but to the people across the world, God has made his message known to, to the vast Majority of the world, the word has gotten out. The gospel is available to everyone, and the Spirit is crying, Come. And so we join with the Spirit, and we desire to call those who haven't yet received to come to Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, even though we don't deserve what you've given us, that you chose to show your loving kindness, Lord, that though you are a righteous and just God, you found a way to make it right and just to offer us beyond what we had earned, Lord, to forgive us for those things that had separated us from you, Lord, and that you've rescued us. You've pulled us from that fire, Lord. And now we bask in your love. Now we sit with this unfailing hope that we have in you, Lord. And we ask that you would stir in us, Lord God, this passion to look back and see those who are left behind, those who have not received yet, Lord, your grace and your mercy. Lord, we pray that you would Use us, Lord God, uh, that we would display the love that you've shown in us with such joy and enthusiasm that we wouldn't cause others to be jealous of what it is that we have, that they would begin desiring it, Lord, that we would walk in joy, that we would walk in contentment, that we would walk uh, in thankfulness of all of the blessings that you've poured out, the undeserved blessings that you have poured out upon us, Lord, and, and all the future hopes and incredible uh, 
glory that we are to share in, that is to come, Lord, let us live in a way that expresses that, that the world might see it and that they would come, that they would come, that they would become thirsty, that this, that, that a thirst would, would, would uh, well up in them, Lord, that they would see us and become thirsty for you. Let us call with the Spirit to those who haven't received to come. Everyone is welcome. Let's call them to come. Let's go in the power of the Holy Spirit, calling the nations to come to Jesus for the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. Amen.